Section four of Days with Walt Whitman by Edward Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Whitman as Prophet. Dr. R. Morris Buck, in his Memories of Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman Fellowship Papers, Philadelphia, 1894, page 42. Speaking of the years 1853 to 55, and of the inception of Leaves of Grass, says, quote, A very few years before these dates we find Walt Whitman writing tales, essays, sketches, and even poems, which are in no way distinguishable from that mighty tide of ditch-water which Carlyle tells us flows day by day from the power-presses of civilization. All at once he writes the greatest book of a great century, where did he get the stuff to put in it? How did he get it all, in a minute, as it were? Or, if it was in him before, why did it not show itself? My memories of Walt Whitman include many talks in which I did my best to obtain light upon these and related problems. Generally, he would pass over the subject with a half-answer or a return question. At other times he would be more explicit, as he was one day in the summer of 1886, when he said, Leaves of grass was there, though unformed, all the time, in whatever answers as the laboratory of the mind. I was more or less conscious of it, and often thought of taking action in that direction. But you can understand there was much to deter, that until the impulse to move had become very strong, nothing would be done. I could clearly see that such an enterprise would meet with little favor, at all events at first, that it would be hooted at, as it was, and perhaps hooted down. The Democratic Review essays and tales came from the surface of the mind, and had no connection with what lay below, a great deal of which, indeed, was below consciousness. At last came the time when the concealed growth had come to light, and the first edition of Leaves of Grass was written and published. This phrase, the concealed growth had come to light, thus preserved for us by Dr. Buck, helps much towards the appreciation of the prophetic and unexpected character of Leaves of Grass. We do not, of course, understand why out of green foliage and branches a sudden and unexpected blossom, yet evidently long prepared in the heart of the plant, should appear, nor do we understand why, often amid quite unpromising foliage of the human mind, a great work of art or prophecy arises. Yet we seem to see that the processes are very similar. A centre of growth, hitherto unnoticed, long hidden, has come to light. Prophecy at all times has this inevitable spontaneous character, as of something arising from below the ordinary consciousness, which, just for the very reason that it so arises, cannot be deliberately quenched or stopped, something almost inarticulate, hardly gaining the sphere of definition, irrational, and out of joint with accepted things, subversive, inconvenient, contrary, enunciative of a new order. The prophets are stoned, for they are obviously liars and iconoclasts. They are charged with inconsistency, and poor things they cannot deny the charge, they cannot help themselves. The flower unfolding out of its own roots cannot unfold other than it does. By many such marks Whitman's work shows a prophetic character. 
and while he does not claim to deliver a new gospel, he seems to claim to take his place in the line of those who have handed down a world-old treasure of redemption for mankind. In his poem, To Him That Was Crucified, Leaves of Grass, page 298, he says, My spirit to yours, dear brother, do not mind because many sounding your name do not understand you. I do not sound your name, but I understand you. I specify you with joy, O my comrade, to salute you and to salute those that are with you before and since, and those to come also, that we all labor together transmitting the same charge and succession. We few equals, indifferent of lands, indifferent of times, we, enclosers of all continents, all castes, allowers of all theologies, compassionators, perceivers, rapport of men, we walk silent among disputes and assertions, but reject not the disputers, nor anything that is asserted. We hear the bawling and the din, we're reached at by divisions, jealousies, recriminations on every side, they close peremptorily on us to surround us, my comrade. Yet we walk unheld, free, the whole earth over, journeying up and down till we make our ineffaceable mark upon time and the diverse eras, till we saturate time and eras, that the men and women of races, ages to come, may prove brethren and lovers as we are. End quote. It will be noticed that in this great poem he speaks not merely as a successor of him that was crucified, but as a continuer of some worldwide and age-long tradition, and in truth we cannot doubt that the root of it all has been known and realized since the farthest history. The charge and succession have certainly descended out of dim obscurity from the earliest times. How much exactly Walt Whitman may have known of the Vedic and other early writings is doubtful, but that he had read here and there among them quite enough to gain an insight into the heart of them and to know that his message was continuous with theirs is quite certain. Quote, These are really the thoughts of men in all ages and lands. They are not original with me. End quote. In the Vedic scriptures, and in lineal succession from these, in the Buddhist and Platonist and Christian writings, in the Taoists of China, the mystics of Egypt, the Sufis of Persia, the root is to be found, and is clearly distinguishable, the very same from which leaves of grass has sprung. Square bracket. It would be too long at present by quotations from all these writings to attempt to prove this, but in an appendix to this paper I have in very imperfect fashion dotted in a number of parallel passages from them and from leaves of grass, and these may serve to illustrate what I mean. End square bracket. A glance at these ancient and modern utterances assures us that all down history the same loving universal spirit has looked out, making its voice heard from time to time, harmonizing the diverse eras, enclosing continents, castes, and theologies. The same charge and succession has passed on, and Whitman voices and transmits it in his turn. Yet, of course, there are differences. We cannot say that Whitman is more subtle, more penetrating, more profound than many of those who've gone before. It would be hard to imagine anything more subtle and profound than passages in the Upanishads. But in one respect he is certainly unique among the prophets, 
and that is in the universality and breadth of his appeal. He seems to liberate the good tidings and give it a democratic scope and worldwide application unknown in the elder prophets, even in the sayings of Buddha. The difficulty with the earlier prophets, no doubt, was that around them limitations existed on every hand. Races, peoples, religions were sharply divided from each other. In the early world, exclusiveness was indispensable. The peoples and nations could not have grown up if each had not believed that its own customs, morals, religion, race, etc., were infinitely superior to those of the others. Exclusiveness and war were the nurses of growing humanity's powers, of comradeship, organized life, community of sentiment, courage, self-sacrifice, and all the early virtues. Problems of social life and character, which could never have been solved in a general ocean of mankind, were easy to define and determine in small communities. Ignorance and prejudice were necessary fences between one state or system of society and another, and however great certain individual teachers may have been in the past, however generous and wide their real outlook on life, they still could only act and speak subject to the very definite limitations prevailing around them. Footnote. We have to remember, too, that their sayings have come down to us only through priestly local racial media. There is not a sacred book that has not been tampered with, and its teaching distorted in the direction of narrowing and exclusiveness. End of footnote. The Joels, Jeremiah's, Mohammed's, Carlyle's, stung no doubt by incontrollable impulse to blaze forth that which was in them, have delivered their special messages, have called the people of their time to gather themselves round some new centre of life and inspiration, moral or religious or racial, and in doing so have anathematized every other code of morals or form of religion, called all outside people Gentiles or barbarians, and put them to the sword. They have done work priceless in their time and locality, insisting on and compelling each some certain and necessary step in human progress, and having done so they have gone their way and been superseded, because their message was only a part message. Only a few have not been superseded, teachers like the Buddha, Jesus of Nazareth, St. Francis, and the Syrian Bab. Note, see Abbas Effendi, A Study of the Religion of the Babis, by M. H. Phelps, Putnam's, 1903. End of note. They belong to no race or nationality. If they press the claims of religion or morality, it is with so little insistence on any particular scheme or code that their net may be said to be spread to catch all humanity. They are acceptors rather than deniers. They represent the prophetic gift in its deepest and most inclusive utterance, and it is difficult to think of them as becoming antiquated or out of date. Yet, though it would not be acceptable or desirable to make comparisons of greatness, we may say that even among these, Whitman was, with the exception perhaps of the Bab, unique in the realization of the worldwide and universal character of his message. The others had messages of worldwide import to deliver, though perhaps they hardly knew this at the time. But Whitman realized from the first that this universality was the very key and center of his utterance, and set himself deliberately to emphasize it. 
Many things conspired with him to this result, the girdling of the earth in his time, and the extraordinary developments of locomotion and intercommunication which were bringing together east and west, and all races and classes, creeds and customs, into close touch and acknowledgment of each other. The peoples were being compelled to see that none of them has a monopoly of excellence or defect, but that all illustrate in their various ways forms of necessary life. The press, the locomotive, the wire, were pushing more and more insistently to this conclusion. The fences were breaking down. A new era was shaping, and Whitman himself, by a nature and temperament of extraordinary balance and fullness, physical, mental, and moral, quote, I can resist anything better than my own diversity, end quote, was fitted to respond to it all, to swim in this ocean of humanity as in a sea, square bracket, Yet, even so, and allowing for the occasioning causes, it must be said that his utterance in its demonic reach and sweep is somewhat staggering. Through leaves of grass pours a torrent of trades, classes, characters, occupations, races, nations, morals, manners, incidents, opinions, things generally accounted beautiful and things unbeautiful, things good or evil, proper or improper, in huge indifference all apparently accepted on an equality, dismissed on an equality. It is to certain folk most confusing and at times even revolting and terrifying. End square bracket. Of this new era, with all its splendors and terrors, Walt Whitman may be said to be the prophet. Through the, quote, barbaric yawp, end quote, and seeming random medley of his verse, inarticulate enough at times in its very endeavor to include and accept every phase and feature of human life, break out the deep rolling organ tones of creation's primal music. We hear the same age-long theme and symphony of all historic time, gaining through whatever imperfections a larger, freer expression by virtue of its so much more extended keyboard and orchestra, by virtue of its discords and sequences more daring than ever used in literature before. And the theme? Whitman has defined it very directly at the first outset of his poems. Quote, One's self, I sing, a simple, separate person, yet utter the word democratic, the word en masse. End quote. The self, individual and separate, yet conjoined and continuous throughout creation's mass. That is the theme which undoubtedly runs through the whole of his poems and prophetic utterances, and it is the theme of the eldest Upanishads of the Vedic sages. It is the theme which has come down through the ages, variously balanced, with now somewhat more insistence on one aspect, now somewhat more on another, variously expressed and illustrated in poetical, religious or philosophical form, variously colored, confined, or conventionalized by race and tradition, but inevitably gaining in the long run in freedom and fullness of utterance. In Whitman it breaks out almost unconsciously, certainly less as the result of any intellectual process or argument than by force of an irresistible impulse into a strange torrential paean of identity. Everything, the whole earth, and all its shows, 
men and women, sinners and saints, the stars, insects, solar systems, all beings are envisaged in order to be identified with the One. They are accorded each their unique, unapproachable character and perfection, only to be embraced. Quote, we make our ineffaceable mark upon time and the diverse eras, till we saturate time and eras, that the men and women of races, ages to come, may prove brethren and lovers as we are. End quote. So in Whitman all the purblind morals and moonlight ideals of the past are, whether directly or by implication, broken up, hence storm and terror to many, and led back to their most central motive, the world-old revelation of the self, eternal and inseparate. Quote, I ascend from the moon, I ascend from the night. I perceive that the ghastly glimmer is noonday sunbeams reflected, and debouched to the steady and central from the offspring, great or small. End quote. Always the inward, the enduring, the central, the vital is acknowledged and honored. The external, the temporary, the unessential thrown off. Underneath all morals, manners, races, titles, classes, the original human soul and its affections, greater than all. Underneath clothing, costume, ranks, trades and occupations, the bodily form, its needs and physiology. Underneath all art and social life, sex and fraternity, greater than all houses, temples, galleries and museums, the life of the open air and its lessons. In such simple elementary things as these, in the universal human soul, rediscovering itself in all forms, in the healthy and beautiful human body, in sex and fraternity, in the life with the earth and the open air, Whitman sees the root out of which future humanity will spring, as it has sprung in the past, out of which a society of proud, strong, free individuals, who shall also be brethren and lovers, may easily and naturally arise. Quote, now if a thousand perfect men were to appear, it would not amaze me. Now if a thousand beautiful forms of women appeared, it would not astonish me. End quote. We may indeed say that with the signal appearance of leaves of grass, the hour has struck for mankind of liberation, of emancipation from mere outer rules and limitations, the hour for the reference of all life, irrespective of color, creeds, and principles, to its central essence. It may be, for reasons already hinted, an hour of danger. Not a few, accustomed only to walk by well-worn paths and formulae, will lose their way. Quote, Take warning, he travelling with me needs the best blood, thews, endurance. End quote but it is an hour which must needs come, and it opens for humanity on an era of unexampled glory. And here a word about individuals. It will be recognized by all readers of Whitman that his insistence on the permanence, the immortality, the supreme life of the individual is a most marked feature of his teaching. Quote, the sum of all known reverence I add up in you, whoever you are. Yourself, yourself, yourself for ever and ever. I sing the songs of the glory of none. 
not God, sooner than I sing the songs of the glory of you. End quote. For Whitman, every self in its essence is individual, eternal, perfect, accruing to itself alone. Quote, I swear I think now that everything without exception has an eternal soul. Each man to himself and each woman to herself is the word of the past and present and the true word of immortality. No one can acquire for another, not one. No one can grow for another, not one. End quote. And yet, strange paradox, all are one. Quote, Have you thought there could be but a single supreme? There can be any number of supremes. One does not countervail another any more than one eyesight countervails another, or one life countervails another. End quote. Each is a simple separate person, and yet en masse with the rest. I think we may say that no former teacher has quite dared to give this side of the truth as Whitman has done, nor given it with so free and so splendid an expression. Thus it may seem that if in the matter of pure philosophical statement Whitman does not stand out in the great charge and succession so strongly as some of his predecessors, yet in two respects at least his work is unique, namely in the universality and determination of his appeal to and brotherhood with all creation, and in his insistence on the root existence of every individual from everlasting to everlasting, his protest, in fact, though quite indirect, against a mere doctrine of absorption in the universal. One other point I should like to note, and it goes with the preceding remarks, namely Whitman's extraordinary concreteness and his consistent and set avoidance of abstract doctrine in the highest regions of thought. Quote, I swear I see what is better than to tell the best. It is always to leave the best untold. Quote. This avoidance is so subtle and determined that many readers are deceived by it into not perceiving quote, beautiful things well enveloped, end quote, and into thinking Whitman himself did not perceive them. The reason of it is clear. Whitman refused to address himself to the brain alone. He saw that with regard to the highest truths, it is useless to try to seize or impart them that way. They must be felt as well as thought. To try to think them alone, as one would prove a syllogism, is a kind of blasphemy. And to create the feeling, the direct awareness and consciousness of the highest facts, one must proceed in another way. One must use the method of indirection, the method of life and time and the earth, as well as of all great art and literature, the appeal through sense, and all concrete experience, penetrating, far-reaching, cumulative in its power, till it wake the profoundest deeps of the soul. Through Whitman's pages, all the shows of the earth and myriads of concrete images surge and break upon the sensitive mind surface of the reader, who in many cases as little understands or suspects what their meaning and intention is, as every child of man suspects the meaning of the winds and waters that play around him as he walks. Nevertheless, they convince by their presence. They wake and build up new ranges of feeling in him. They filter and fiber his blood. And it is this concreteness 
this power of indirect appeal which constitute Whitman great among the poets, even as his unrivaled knowledge of the actual world and of actual life and his absolute acceptance of the same give him so high a distinction among the prophets. End of section 4 Read by Sandra, September 5th, 2021